0: Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 561 of the podcast and it is Friday the 9th of July 2021 as I record this. In today's show, I am talking to Scottish author Ed James on writing crime fiction and some of the important elements of the genre, as well as how his publishing choices have evolved over time, why he had to reboot his book marketing and how he did it, and how his engineering background helped him become a better writer. And of course, Ed is Scottish, so you get to listen to his lovely accent. So that's coming up in the interview section. In publishing news, well, Jeff Bezos stepped down as CEO of Amazon last week and Andy Jassy stepped in. So Jeff is remaining as executive chair, but he's focusing on Blue Origin, his space venture, which he's always said has been his focus since childhood. In fact, he... uh, he apparently became a, the richest man in the world in order to go to space. I mean, <laughs> you've got to hand it to him. He's he's very driven. <laughs> uh, in fact, he's off to space next week as this goes out. And this is speculation, of course, but I think <laughs> it's possible that uh, the board probably said to him, you know, Jeff, you can't be CEO of Amazon and blast into space because the, there's risk involved in putting the CEO of Amazon on a rocket. <laughs> but now the company is in safe hands, he can blast off without impacting the stock price if anything happens. That is just my supposition. What is uh, quite awesome, I think, and this is this does relate to the entertainment industry, is that Jeff is taking Wally Funk with him. She's 82 and was part of the Mercury 13, the women who did all the NASA training in the early 60s, but were not allowed to go to space. And I learned about them uh, on the Apple TV show For All Mankind, which, by the way, is excellent. It's one of these uh, altern- alternative history and it feels kind of slow paced, but essentially Russia gets a man and... And then a woman on the moon first before the US, and then it's sort of tracking NASA sin- uh, and space exploration since that point in an alternative history. And I find alternative history programmes really fascinating, especially as they sort of put in historical footage and things and those women in this alternative history they are the pilots and they do go to space and um or at least some of them do so yeah I thought I thought that was really cool and I wouldn't have literally wouldn't have known about that um other than uh watching the Apple TV show for all mankind and uh also I did also want to mention that um probably eight Seven, eight years ago now, uh, and I've had uh, Dan Sawyer on the show a couple of times. Dan is an audio audio guy from way back. And um, we were talking about world English rights. And we were we were talking, we were laughing about off-world rights, because at the moment, world English rights is what what's in uh, most contracts, for example, uh, or, you know, something specifying world <laughs> or specific territories. But um, then the question became, well, what about off-world rights? Because if people start commuting through space, uh, I say commuting, I mean, you know what, or space tourism or whatever, they're going to need some in flight entertainment, and so who's going to license in uh, sort of off world rights, and what does that mean? And we had thought maybe that wouldn't happen in our lifetime, but uh, again, I'm 46 and Jeff's going to space now, and there's going to be lots more space tourism, so I thought that was interesting to mention. Like, don't write off the possibility of things changing, and even a basic contract term like world English uh, is possibly now going to need an amendment for (laughs) off-world. I love this stuff, I really do. Anyway, back to Amazon. Uh, Andy Jassy, the new CEO, joined Amazon in 1997 and led and pretty much built AWS. Now, many I I, I use AWS for um, hosting, of files and things, and their cloud hosting runs a lot of the internet. But if you go to the AWS homepage, you'll now see how much more it has become. It's AI as a service, it's blockchain, internet of things, quantum computing, robotics, VR, and a ton of other stuff. If you go there, you'll see the breadth of what that business does. And I think this is very interesting because, of course, we've got these bills going through Congress discussing regulation and potentially breakup of big tech in some ways. And although the message is business as usual at Amazon, I would expect changes in the next year because... As a company in control of its destiny, I believe Amazon will make changes to its own company before someone forces them to do it. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm putting together this futurist update at the moment. <laughs> As ever, it's ever expanding. Last time it turned into a book. but I'm hoping that's not what it's going to do, but uh, that's going to be coming probably in the next few weeks. Also, in the hot sheet, Jane Friedman reports on a conversation hosted by the Authors Guild with Penguin Random House CEO Marcus Dole. He talked about why this is the best time ever in publishing, which I can certainly agree with, including the fact that the global book market is growing every year. Note, global book market, so yes, across the world. People are spending more money on books than before. Industry revenue is growing and there is a stable, robust business model for both physical distribution and digital distribution, and a healthy coexistence between physical and digital formats. Uh, I definitely would put my hand up around the stable, robust business model, because I think this is being disrupted, which is part of the thing I'm working on. I I think in the next two years, the stable business model (laughs) will be disrupted even more. Uh, Anyway, he said, most recently, the pandemic has only made the situation better, with sales up in all categories and print sales strong. And of course, this is print sales online which is why many authors have um, many indie authors have done pretty well during the pandemic have had a good year in terms of sales and growth because of the pandemic and um, it is a silver lining to what is still a difficult time certainly it still feels like we're oh you know some days it just still feels like we're right in it here in the UK (laughs) for sure Uh, He also says the shift to online retail, 50% before pandemic, 70% during the pandemic, so that's 70% of books bought online, basically, has resulted in sales across a larger number of titles. As Chris Anderson predicted more than 10 years ago in his book, The Long Tail, the digital age has indeed brought a long tail of sales to the industry. The bestseller business is under pressure, which is a challenge for publishing houses. Um, And of course, we have talked about this, you know, indies do exist in the long tail. We don't have a bestseller business, really. Um, I mean, yeah, we don't. Some people focus on launches, but most of us are happy selling many more books in the backlist. When questioned on why many authors are not making much money if publishing is booming. And this is particularly, um, you know, obviously, this is Marcus talking Uh, He says, 50% of the books published by traditional publishers never break even. And I thought that was really fascinating. 50% of books published by traditional publishers never break even. So if you're someone listening and you're like, oh, that book didn't work out so well. (laughs) then don't worry, because it's the same in traditional publishing. Uh, The financial result is negative and it's a loss-making publication. When you're working in this industry, you need a high tolerance of frustration. Agents know that. Authors know that. You fail often. But that failure is a good thing, Dole said. If we never fail, we don't publish enough. It's a creative business. It's a risky business. It's unpredictable. There is no formula. In essence, every book is a new creative entrepreneurial endeavour. So I thought that was fascinating. You you know, this is the the CEO of Penguin Random House saying that 50% of books don't even break even. I don't even know. I mean, (laughs) they have a lot, a lot of multiple streams of income publishers. But yeah, I thought you might enjoy that. So as ever, lots more in the Hot Sheet, which is a paid newsletter by Jane Friedman. And it's a very reasonable price and you get it every two weeks. I subscribe, definitely recommend it if you're interested in staying up to date with what's going on in the publishing industry, in both the traditional side, the indie side. Uh, Just go to hotsheetpub.com to check out one of the newsletters and subscribe. Also, Mike Shatskin, publishing expert and commentator, has a blog post this week on basically enterprise book publishing. So he says, It increasingly looks to me like enterprise driven book publishing will become the dominant provider of books over the next decade. What distinguishes it from what distinguishes it is book publishing as a function in support of other efforts rather than as a standalone business intending to make money. So (laughs) I was reading this going, uh, Again, I feel like this is something that's been going on a long time, but maybe this is um, an expansion. But this is no surprise to us, I think. Many um, non-fiction authors publish as lead generation into their more lucrative businesses. And many top nonfiction bloggers, speakers, coaches have been doing this for years. Or for example, you know, one example of this is um, my free ebook, Successful Self-Publishing, which I keep updated. Uh, that's a free ebook, but it, it, it earns me quite a lot of money through affiliate income, through links to services and products. And of course, there's um, a declaration in there that there are affiliate links, but I recommend services and products I trust. And so that free book brings in and it is available in print, but that free book or cheap print book brings in much more money through other ways than it does through sales. And this is a model that nonfiction bloggers and speakers and coaches have been doing for years. Now, I think Mike has sort of expanded this definition into any business that is using content creation as marketing, accountants, real estate agencies, any businesses. Noting the, difference bet- the distance between publishing a blog and publishing a book is literally vanishingly small. And it's funny he says that because I hate the fast blog to book idea. There were some apps early, uh, probably still some apps where you could just press a button and output your blog uh, into book format. And I personally, I think content in a book is different to that on a blog. And I often do it the other way around. So I have many articles on the creative pen that are chapters from books that I've written and published that I then put onto the blog. I don't think It goes the other way because content you write specifically for a blog is quite different to that that you put in a book. But I do agree that books are becoming more common amongst companies that want to present their material in book format and don't need a publisher to do that. Or they're basically their own publisher. As Mike says, bookstores don't sell most of the books. More than half books sold are sold through online discovery and ordering, which means there is no more protected space for dedicated publishers. So what does this mean for us? Well, it's not news that publishing a book is not a special thing. (laughs) Publishing is not story worthy. Uh, You know, we have a lot of books in the world. But as ever, it's about doubling down on being you and sharing your particular angle on whatever you're writing about your story, your take on a romance or a thriller. Why would someone buy my little book on the future of publishing when they could buy a book from Wired? Well, it's my take on the topic. It's my personal angle. So the book is not the unique or special thing. You are. And I think that's so important for us to remember. In my personal update, I've had a good week between my two writing projects. I go to the co-working space down in Bath in the morning to write Tomb of Relics. (laughs) my next arcane thriller which I'm just having fun with to be honest I'm just indulging all my weirdness and uh, then I come back to the house to do some work on the relaxed author and uh, which I'm co-writing with Mark Leslie Lafave and also other business and life things and it's working well because the different location helps me move between my different brains as JF Penn in the morning and Joanna Penn later in the day and uh, I just like keeping the two separate I find having that different physical space helps a lot. And uh, yeah, so that's good. Uh, also, if you enjoyed the show last week with Jen Stevens, we briefly talked about intermittent fasting, but I go into a lot more detail about my own practice, I guess, in an interview on her podcast, Intermittent Fasting Stories, which uh, I'm in episode 155. So just look for Intermittent Fasting Stories on your favorite podcast app, and it's episode 155. Uh, and yeah, you'll hear about me and Jonathan and how IF has really helped us in the last year. Also in personal Things as a, and useful stuff, hopefully, as a celebration of direct sales. And uh, I'm doing 50% off all my courses and my direct sale of audiobooks and ebooks for the month of July 2021. Just use coupon July21, all caps, at checkout for 50% off at thecreativepen.com forward slash learn for my courses and payhip.com forward slash the creative pen for ebooks and audiobooks. Links in the show notes. Coupon july Twenty one, and thanks to everyone who's been buying books and courses this week I like I just love having the direct ability to do this I like having this coupon thing to do special deals for my audience so yeah I really love that okay thanks to all your emails and tweets and comments this week Dharma says listening to the latest show while making latte art at home a little skill I learned during lockdown <laughs> lovely pictures of coffee which is great Uh, Elena said, this was a great interview, as was the one of you on Jin's show. I like how you included your husband's journey and your moderate, slow approach to intermittent fasting, which makes it look more feasible long term. And yeah, to me, it is just the way uh, it's, it's a way of eating. Like it's not a diet. It's a way of eating. Uh, Anthony commented on YouTube on the PseudoWrite interview with Armet, says, I am a writer with a background in graphic design. Early in my design career, I recall people wondering if computer art was going to stick around and suggested that using Photoshop was cheating. <laughs> Today, we recognize that drawing on a tablet is more efficient drawing and you can't just push a button and have it create a masterpiece. I believe AI writing tools like PseudoWrite will be seen the same way one day. Totally agree, Anthony, and uh, I love using PseudoWrite as part of my writing process now. Right, so today's show is sponsored by IngramSpark. I use IngramSpark to print and distribute my self-published print books wide. Because with IngramSpark, it's my content. They help me do more with it. So why even consider IngramSpark? Well, if you only use KDP Print, bookstores, libraries, universities and print on demand sites in many countries will not consider your book because you need to offer a discount. And also you need to be in the catalogues that many of those services use. So if you care about getting your book into bookstores, libraries, etc, you need to go wide with your print books. And remember, even if you're exclusive with your eBooks, you can go wide with print and or audio, and uh, so you can still do wide printing with IngramSpark. You will have access to over 40,000 retailers through independent bookstores, libraries, schools and universities, chain bookstores, and more across a global network of distributors, including bookstores like Foil's. Blackwells and Waterstones in the UK and I've seen my books in uh, Blackwells and Waterstones which is cool as well as bookshop.org which has become very popular in the pandemic, Booktopia in Australia and New Zealand, Chapters Indigo in Canada, Walmart, Target and loads of independent bookstores in the USA. Of course. And, and it means if you, if, if a reader recommends that a library order your book, they'll be able to go onto their system and find it. Of course, it means your book will be available to order, but you will still have to drive demand. But since having my books on Spark, I've had, um, pictures of my print books in libraries. I've sold them at book fairs, conventions, and in physical stores. And my revenue, um, my, uh, Income from Ingram Spark has grown over the past couple of years, which I shared on my uh, book sales report uh, the other week. You can choose to use returns but it's not necessary and I don't do returns and you can choose your discount percentage. You can also bulk order. So for example if you want if you're speaking at an event or you work direct with schools or even bookstores. I've had several bookstores order direct uh, from me and then I just go on to Ingram order a box of books and ship them to the location. All works very well. So, it's your content. Do more with it. Head over to ingramspark.com. So, this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription, and editing, but my time is sponsored by my wonderful patrons, and especially the in-between episodes, more of which to come. Thanks to new patrons this week, Ashley Rescott, Shannon Sullivan, Peter de Taggios, and Rob Johnson. And thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. Your support means so much to me and uh, helps me know and understand that this show is still useful. And uh, in the days when I feel like stopping, you guys keep me going. And remember, if you sign up, you get the Q&A, monthly Q&A, where I answer your questions. And you also get the backlist. And Julie said just wanted to express my deep appreciation for your backlist of Q&A podcasts. I'm just starting out on my indie publishing journey. And since I signed up on Patreon a few weeks ago, I've been working through the backlist. I'm back to September 2017 and have 20 pages of notes, hugely useful and will prevent me making a lot of beginner's mistakes. So yes, you get lots of backlist audio if you uh, join up on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash the creative pen. And of course, you know, it is a a monthly thing, but you can pop in and out as you like. Right, let's get into the interview. Ed James is a Scottish crime author with over 20 crime and thriller novels spanning five different series set across Edinburgh, Dundee, London and the Pacific Northwest of the USA. So welcome, Ed.
1: Hi, Peter Joanna. It's good to catch up again after so long.
0: Yeah, indeed, and uh, we see each other in person occasionally at events, but first up, tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing.
1: So the, my sort of path to writing was, it's called I was looking for a, a creative outlet as I was growing up and it used to be music and I was in bands and, and so on and so forth, and then that all kind of sort of died a bit in about 2005 Six time and I just I was very angry about the about music and how much time is spent on it and a lot of other things so I just started uh, channeling my energies into writing and over that, sort of that next four years it's a case of writing what people call practice novels I suppose over various genres sending them off to agents getting absolutely nothing other than maybe a few little leaflets back saying yeah no we have Thanks for sending us, it's not for us, kind of thing. And then I think about 2010, I finished the first uh, Scott Cullen book and actually had some interest from agents there. And that's quite exciting because everyone I knew who'd been involved in writing had never even got that far. So it was like three months you wait when you send off the full manuscript and then in another sort of forum. Um, not quite a form rejection, but just saying, yeah, it's not not for us. And that was a bit dispiriting, and I kind of gave up writing about that point for about a year and a half. My day job got a bit a bit hectic as well, and then that was I remember reading lots of stuff late two thousand eleven about how the Kindle was taking off, and I thought, right. I've got that book. I think it's probably got a lot of potential, so I'll finish it, publish it, and see how it goes. And that was that took me a bit longer than I expected because it needed a lot of work. So maybe the the agents weren't so daft. But um, yeah, I think my dad did the copy editing and proofing for it, and and I got it up in the middle of April, two thousand and twelve. And it took me quite a while to get the get any sales to come in. I and mean, that was like the sort of the start of this was the. You know, I think you talk about this sort of flip of um, being an author to being the publisher, and it's understanding that side of it from an ab- absolutely nothing, no understanding of what publishers even did around editing or marketing, all that kind of stuff, and actually just having to get sort of a, a handle of marketing and then start to sell books that was in those days you got a lot of stuff free from amazon i think it's fair to say they used to present your books to people and that was always quite nice when once you got enough traffic on you get quite a lot of uh a lot of traction of that
0: so then so that takes you up to 2012 2013 and and mm-hmm. then did you what happened with your day job you said you were, were working a day job back then
1: yeah so around that time i think i published five books in about a year maybe six yeah, year, year and a half and it sort of started creeping up to being quite a good uh, monthly income and I was, at that point I was working in London and I was actually travelling from a home near Edinburgh every week uh, on a you know, half six flight down to London in the morning and then uh, back up on Thursday night and working home from home on Friday and I was basically just either working or writing when I was down there, or occasionally seeing friends and uh, yeah I started to get quite a bit of money coming in from having like a a decent sort of start to a series so four books in that and a vampire thriller that didn't, didn't exactly set the world to flame. So that was kind of, it was more like I had a sort of back pain at at the time. It was a really lower back problem and I was struggling to actually work. So I had another contract in Edinburgh this time, Went and I couldn't, and it lasted about three days because my back was so bad. And there uh, must have been some sort of form of a sick building syndrome. And I just sat from then, recovered a bit, and wrote. And the money kept coming in, rolling in, increasing. So, and I haven't looked back since. That's now my eighth year, I think, full time. So it's been a pretty good ride, but a stressful one. I think it's fair to say. <laughs> That's a stressful
0: one. Yeah, we'll we'll come back to the publishing side, but I want to start with the uh, genre side because a lot of listeners, obviously, we've got a lot of UK listeners, but we've also got a lot of Americans listening, people in other countries. And I feel like crime fiction has a really specific place in the UK market. It feels like it's a huge genre. And we have an appreciation, perhaps even the literary critics seem to have uh, some appreciation of of crime novels. So I wondered if you will maybe comment on why is it so big in the UK? and, And also, what are the essential genre elements for a crime novel
1: so i think there's definitely something in the discrepancy between britain and america in terms of popularity of maybe like more of the police procedural side of things which i write so i think in america it's very hard to think of any police procedurals. as a probably only um michael connolly's bosch series that's a police procedural and even then it's like a pi working in the you know police force whereas a lot of the big books over there tend to be that sort of pi thing which doesn't isn't really a sort of a genre over here whereas we have a rich legacy going back to morse and before and all of you know big police procedural series and, and a lot of it is I think the television side of it picks up you know you can think when growing up there's lots of tv shows that we had are basically police procedural case of the week the long-running sort of quite cheesy mainstream ones like the bell um, <laughs> which run mm-hmm. every week and every every sort of act, jobbing actor would appear in but that sort of that thing is probably like ingrained in our consciousness and I think the police force here is different to America with all the sort of difficulties they've had over there. The roots of it um, are quite different. So police officers here tend to be seen directly more more as absolute heroes, whereas America is maybe more of a murky grey area. I think there's definitely, I think it's really been really traditionally difficult for British police procedural authors to have to, to translate their success across the Atlantic. I remember Ian Rankin saying that it took him about 20 rebus books before he had a bestseller over there. And I think, you know, his eighth one over here was like basically established that whole genre with the stuff him and Val McDermott were doing at that time in the late 90s it's rare for British authors to have that sort of success over there. There's people, someone like Ruth Ware, for instance, sells an absolute kiloton over there, but doesn't, um, that's her biggest market. And she writes very sort of British crime novels, More maybe a bit more traditional, but with a modern twist on it. And they do colossally well in that uh, neck of the woods. So it's an interesting one, and it's something I've definitely seen. I do sell uh, a sort of a, a, an interesting number in america It's like surprisingly so but it's not that much bigger than what you'd sell in canada or australia so maybe it's like an expat community or anglophiles or, or whatever and that's, it was kind of like an interesting one that led me on to writing a sort of an FBI thriller set over in Seattle and Pacific Northwest, which it was, it was to sort of cap, try and capture some of them <laughs> or just to see if I could sell books over there. But one of the things I've found with I don't know, maybe it's particular to genre fiction, that the readers tend to be very intolerant of authors experimenting, I think. They like their... I think they like the characters as much as they like the author, if that makes sense. So someone will be looking for a Reacher book or a Rebus book rather than a Lee Child or Ian Rankin book. And it's... If you write something that's done by the same name, but it's a thriller set in America with American English, and it's not got... You know, a couple of uh, alcoholic cops wandering around Edinburgh. It's got a lot of chase scenes and so on. They don't seem to appreciate the difference, and I, I think that's one of the things I find with the the vampire book that should have maybe been more of a, a warning sign back in the day. That writing it under the same author name, they didn't um, like the the fact they just they just want police procedures. That's what the the reader a lot of the reader feedback I got was, and it's quite hard when you've got. The you got that established uh, brand to then break into other things.
0: Mm, I totally agree, and I I tried because I obviously being here in in England and met you and a lot of crime authors at conferences and sort of like, right, I'm going to write myself a proper crime novel with a detective and everything. And I attempted a police procedural and ended up with a sort of supernatural thriller hybrid. <laughs> I just can't write anything that doesn't have supernatural in. And I discovered that that these crime readers just would not, they wouldn't read it. They wouldn't pick it up, let alone, it just wasn't their thing. And that, that cross genre, as you say there, it just doesn't seem to work particularly with a a British crime audience and I think you're right about America is a lot more sort of FBI thrillers than there are police procedurals Mm. as such but if we accept that we're going to write a very pure crime novel police procedural so what are the main genre elements the the essential things that you need?
1: So I think that the main thing um that you want to focus on with a police procedural isn't so much the necessarily the crime but it's starting to like look at character, and I think that's probably true of any type of fiction, really. But it, 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 I think with police procedural, it's very very important. Like I, like I was saying earlier, the, I think the reader is attached to the characters. So if you think about a long running series, it's about people um, wanting to spend time with those characters. They become their friends. So. The, the like I think the same with the, that's why podcasts are so important and now and popular because a lot of long running podcasts is like spending time with your friends so thinking about and and lots of TV shows like Friends and Cheers and all that kind of stuff it's it's about that sort of that bond of friendship that the audience has with the creators so um a lot of the characters that that do really well are are making them interesting so they don't have to be a kind of Superman type. Um, or, or too dark like the Hebris Wayne type but like an interesting character is kind of fresh and has an interesting spin on in it so the I'd say the 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 characters I've created the Scott Cullen one is the one who tends to attach most to people and he was started as a sort of the the opposite of the um the tropes where there's a middle-aged alcoholic who's drives a classic car and his difficult relationship with his uh, strange daughter or whatever all those things it was in- inverting that and making him like a really sort of young cop who was idealistic and, so, and all those sort of things so it made, it made it a bit interesting for me to write and I could see sort of that it was kind of fresh and it seems to have picked up on a lot and it, but the problem is a lot of the readers tend to be quite um, conservative in their views not with a small c maybe rather than a capital c but they um, would like the, the, if you look at the bigger sellers, they like they do like a sort of a patrician type, uh, a steady hand on the till, so someone who's a, an authority figure rather than a wee daft idiot from Edinburgh <laughs> running round. Um, and so that's the sort of the, the 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 main kind of thing I think is if you're looking at writing a, a police procedural series, is focusing on an interesting, unique character and someone that you want to write and you want to spend time with, and that you think other people will. But also the the other side of it is that um, i think the important thing is each each uh, novel and a book in the series should be not necessarily standalone but that um case should just cover that so that any new readers picking up book eight or whatever can just get a contained story and there's not too much heavy backstory they need to have read the first seven to uh, to get up to speed on but focusing on like the victims and the families and friends of the victims making them interesting characters showing their lives because. With a police procedure, it's kind of a reflective thing. So you're not necessarily seeing the the victim alive and going through their day. You're investigating their life through a lens and you're picking up lies and, and clues from the friend and family and there's discrepancies and that's where the detectives work at it and you know they can throw in things like action scenes to, to spice it up a bit but that broadly what you're writing is investigating someone's life and unpicking where it all went wrong that someone to the point where someone killed them and obviously you can extend that into the psychology of a serial killer where you've got a very active uh threat against a, a the 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 police who are trying to solve the crime a lot of, a lot of police procedural books tend to be a single murder which is much more believable to uh, to write, whereas a serial killer, there's hundreds of them in fiction and uh, not so many in actual real life anymore.
0: It's interesting you say that because I was thinking, like, I really write thrillers where things are much bigger, like the threat mm. is much, much bigger. But as you say, I think a lot of the police procedural books, as you say, there might be one murder. And even though the stakes are high, they're not the destruction of humanity or millions of people dying. It can be quite... Um, uh, uh, I don't want to use small in a derogatory way, yeah. and it doesn't even have to be domestic, but it's a much tighter viewpoint, I mm-hmm. guess, than having this grand epic thriller, which I guess a lot of people write.
1: Yeah, so I think that it was um, an, one of my favourite books, which you never see mentioned uh, as sort of craft books, is uh, Secrets of Action Screenwriting by, I think it's William Martell. And it's got one of the worst covers I've ever seen for <laughs> a book. But it's like the, inter- the interior is incredible, and there's lots of dissection, and it's very applicable for any type of crime stuff, or thrillers or anything like that. It was really good stuff. It's all about the psychology of the villains. But like you're saying, I think the the thing he homes in on is the stakes. So they should be, if they should either be personal. Or global, like you say, but like take it to the extreme. And I think you know, like I think the police procedurals—it's not about you know that trying to save the president's life to a nuclear war or anything. It's about someone's someone's life has has collapsed, and you know, and the the most extreme personal uh, loss is someone's death. And then you can extend that with police procedurals and type uh, serial killers, and get more of a threat to society and wider active uh, parts of it. But Yeah, I think you're definitely right. The police procedurals tend to have much more of that sort of personal side of it than, you know, your big conspiracies. That's not to say there's not a a genre for uh, (laughs) conspiracy police procedurals.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. But um, I wanted to come back to your background because you have, uh, you worked in process engineering and Mm -hmm. I wondered how, I mean, because crime novels, mysteries, solving a crime, what you can't do is really make it easy for people to figure out. So how does your process engineering background influence your writing process and and your plotting?
1: I think the thing I look at it is is trying to make everything as efficient as possible. So that was what I was always doing in uh, insurance companies and banks it's like there's so sort of a process of someone I don't know changing an address or applying payments or refunding payments, and you're looking at it, documenting what they're doing, and you're understanding where where they have the problem points. There's things that slow it all down, and it's kind of the same with with writing. Where can I make this more efficient? And every time I write a book, I try to do something different to see if I can make it more efficient. And it's always like you know just having that sort of flow chart and it's actually not even something of a document but it's in my head but it is everything I do is like it's all about process and flows of left to right I think a novel when you're reading it is obviously left to right but a lot of the stuff um, we write thrillers or police procedurals um You can do that. You can think about it, whether you're plotting or panting. You can think about it, right to left, where the right is. You've got the answer. So why has someone done this? And that's the biggest question. Any book, when you're writing it, you you should always ask yourself: Is not necessarily about the character, but why has someone killed someone? Why is someone trying to start a nuclear war between America and China? Or what's the sort of the the motivation behind the villain? What's their plan? And then. It's kind of like, how do you reveal that? How do you get this off, the sort of the front facing narrative drive uh, to meet up with the discovering the motive? And then all the, once you've got those bits. At least sort of concrete. The, the a lot of the a lot of the stuff falls out of that because there's a conflict between what your protagonist hero wants and what your villain is trying to do, and it's it all all that comes out kind of naturally at, at now. I find, whereas before when I was writing it, it was very messy. I've Got thirty odd books now, and you learn a lot when you're going through editing with people, and you sort of pick up. You know, there's no like one standard editorial process. You know, it's everyone has their own little biases they bring to it and their own little tips and tricks. And one of the things I'd like to do is use various editors at various points and pick up little techniques, little tricks, so that it speeds me up, so that I need less editing as I go, so that the... the, the, you know it's not maybe not the first draft but it's about this sort of the 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 first final product I've done that's as close to to finished as possible so it's been you know edited by myself to standard the same standards as another editor would have done because I've learned a lot of the things they would be looking for and it's kind of like designing I suppose designing those aspects in so if like one one of the main things you'll see in screenwriting books for example is that A scene should either show character or move the plot forward, and if it doesn't, cut it out. Um, And an editor will say, "This book doesn't show, (laughs) doesn't move anything forward. Can you just get rid of it?" So it's like making sure that when you're going through an outline, that or you're even if you're uh, pantsing it when you're actually writing it making sure that there's tension to it. Does this move the plot forward? Is there an obstacle to the character getting what they want? Is it clearly defined what the character wants in this scene? Or does it just show them, show something about them, or ideally both? Um, all that kind of stuff is is trying to give myself a, sort of like maybe not so much a pro forma, but a template that, ans- that asks me all these standard questions that I then, I, I've kind of, be- it becomes intuition and instinct as you're uh, going through the outline. Um so a lot of it's practice, but a lot of it's like reading up on craft books as well to understand the best practices across other people's experiences and then you know anything that sort of tingles your spidey sense, putting that into uh, your own process and and making sure that all the little every time you go through stuff, you're starting at the right point, or that making sure that any scenes that you've got um, in there should be in there, have to be in there and they're essential to the story
0: everybody now wants your flowchart and <laughs> your writing process engineering book so uh yeah. I, I think you should definitely try and put that together at some point yeah. and come back and tell us about it because <laughs> no I mean and I used to do a similar job in consulting and uh swim lane diagrams I think yeah, is, yeah probably what you're talking about yeah. the different roles and who would do what and then you mm-hmm. try and re-engineer that but it's funny because I I just don't I can't think of my writing in that way. I'm just, but what I do is, as you say, with every scene, is I will see what the movement is. And I use that Robert McKee value shift as plus or minus or minus, minus, or all of those types of things. So we, as you say, we all pick up our tips along the way and we apply them. And it doesn't matter whether you're a plotter or a panther or whatever you do you will find a way but yeah it's it sounds like you've got a really honed process because you've written as you said over 30 books now and um, you're still going so I did want to ask because one of the things with crime novels of course is that generally the crime is often the same it's like uh, someone's been Mm -hmm. murdered and there really only are a certain number of ways to murder people and how people actually die so the originality is never in the death really mm-hmm. rarely in the death the originality is more about as you say the motivations of the characters and the development of of the characters so how do you do your research uh, how do you pick things up do you read a lot of true crime or how do you get your ideas classic <laughs> yeah. question
1: well there's there's that there's that shop in camden you know that sells uh, author ideas no, yeah um, <laughs> i think they're out <laughs> <laughs> yeah um it's, it's an I don't really read a lot of true crime or listen to a lot. So the, but you're absolutely right. The thing is, there's not necessarily a lot of originality. And I've tried to do it a few times in books where I think the first, the first one I published with uh, Amazon's Thomas and Mercer book was called Snared and it's now been re-edited and republished as Tooth and Claw. That was uh, not a murder. That was domestic uh, terrorism, Um So animal rights, but it was a missing person at the start. So it was very much a police procedural. And I think there wasn't even a murder until about 200 pages in. So that was like me trying to do, right, how can I do a book that doesn't have a murder on page one? And just trying to do something interesting like that. I think a lot of it is I'll have like an idea for either like a character who seems interesting and then you can get some motivations, and it's like, what would push them to kill? Or you get ideas about a theme. So that one about, you know, like animal rights, terrorism. What would be the motivations for that? What kind of crimes would they would they commit to get into the papers or onto the telly to to further their cause? And it's just a lot of it. It just comes into like thinking about the victim and the villain. Like, what would make someone? push themselves to that extreme end and then it's just a a lot of osmosis i think so i listen to a lot of podcasts and current affairs news politics video games and technology and stuff and it's amazing the interesting stuff you pick up that's that just sort of sparks off some little little sort of figment of so little not figment little um idea that starts that starts flowing from out out from there and it makes you think oh well if they took that and they did that and a lot of it's what ifs what if someone like so and so was was more like this and they did that um which isn't really very helpful but that's usually the starting point but one of the things i've been doing this year is a lot of idea development because Usually, you know, I think you're talking about when you're talking about uh, plotting and pantsing, Every time, whenever I've tried either, I always have a bit of a mess around the third act just as it's closing in. And it's always like, well, I haven't thought through this, I haven't thought through that. So, what I've spent a lot of time this year on is refining my process so that I understand that motivation. And then it's kind of like, and then being able to bake it into the whole story as I go through it. And I think that would be the biggest piece of advice i would say it's simple stuff like the who who let's go who what where why when how answer those questions and you've got a pretty solid motivation for a book and then you can you know twist it a few times and you get something that's actually quite interesting because sometimes the first idea you come up with is fairly vanilla or fairly plain but then if you twist it and then twist it again you get something that's kind of unique and cool that, that probably hopefully nobody's ever done before uh, and you can run run around run wild with that
0: absolutely and i think you mentioned the what sparks your interest and I, I think developing that curiosity is so important and i feel like that's where when i worked in in the sort of it and, and business process industry i didn't have that I didn't understand that spark of curiosity. I couldn't tap into it. And it takes practice mm-hmm. to become aware of your personal radar as to what you are interested in and then honestly do that. So one of mine is religious relics. I can't walk past a religious relic. <laughs> <laughs> I just I just love them. I'm so interested in them and I'm always reading about them. And so they turn up in a lot of my books. But it's like I didn't really know that about myself. So do, do you find that that curiosity is is almost a muscle that you have to lean into and, and trust in some way
1: yeah and it's, i think that's an interesting one a bit you know like the- I think when you're growing up you assume everyone's the same and, and you sort of uh, over the, as you grow up you discover people are very different and you're very different and you have your own little sort of peculiarities and you know like you, you can't walk past a religious icon i can't walk past a map i'm absolutely oh i can't walk past maps. a map
0: either <laughs> yeah i
1: absolutely love maps and it's like i should maybe write high fantasy so i can get maps put at the back start of my books but yeah i think it's like i, I one of the things that i never thought i was a, a people person but as it worked um i really actually was and like I got fascinated by the people I, I would meet and and engage with and when you're working in sort of financial services you actually meet a lot of interesting characters and <laughs> that's for sure Certainly banking you, you know I probably have met quite a lot of psychopaths and I don't mean that <laughs> flippantly I mean genuinely the sort of behavior that you get from these people it's like it's quite staggering when you actually analyze because you know I've had you know incredibly difficult um meetings we go into an office in central london and as you just sit down and you've got to get something out of these guys uh, to help with your part of a project and they just sit down and go why the f should i help you and that actually genuinely happened to me and i still can't believe it but you know there's a lot of just crazy people out there and you, you know this yourself that when you're working in that industry and you're flipping around between different companies or different parts of a company you meet lots and lots and lots of people if you meet hundreds and thousands of people it's like you start to see fine gradations of people and lots of different personality types and you sort of get them very instinctively and a lot of the time when you're writing this sort of when i'm writing particularly the the characters jump out of my head because it's all it's all sort of based on aspects of people i've met not not like not like sort of like friends or family just like little little bits of people and you extrapolate that um which is a sort of really an unusual piece of psychoanalysis i've just done on myself but <laughs> <laughs>
0: well, so i've never been a people person so i do things in quite a different way but that's interesting uh, about you so i do want to ask you about marketing mm-hmm. You recently, I think it was recently or last year, you rebranded your series covers. Yeah. And obviously a series is so critical, why did you do that? You know, what was the need and how important is that branding and cover design in in crime selling, I guess?
1: Yeah. So I, th- I, mean, I think cover a good cover is a pretty good starting point. Because, you know, predominantly when you're looking at with the stuff I do, it's, always on, it's all on Amazon, whereas people who are wide, it's still on a digital platform. So you're looking at it on a screen or whether it's a phone or a computer or a tablet or whatever. So it's like that's the sort of the thing that people are seeing. And especially now, as more and more of the Amazon stuff is becoming very not not quite pay to play. I don't want to mean that disparagingly, but like there's a huge focus on the advertising, and the thing you're advertising isn't necessarily the anything other than the book cover. You know, when you when you look at the sponsored page at the a, a section of a page on Amazon, it's um, the book cover, so it's got to be particularly eye catching. And I've I've always done my own covers for the self published books. And it, they used to be pretty, pretty rubbish and amateur and stuff. And I think just had a lot of practice now that I can, I feel I can start to produce more professional-looking ones and start being able to do uh, print ones which look quite cool. Um, and the reason I rebranded, I think it's always it's quite, it can be quite a good um, habit to get into. I think to just have a look, you know, if you look at this or even look at the trad publishing world, people like. Um, Ian Rankin, I've noticed a lot since I bought his books starting in about 1998 going onwards. There's been about four or five different iterations of his covers. So they're always like sort of, they sort of move around different themes, but they're always kind of particularly reasonably similar. But they they do like to refresh the backlist. And I think the the sort of function of that, particularly in a digital age, is that you can look at a book cover and it'll just go, yeah, it doesn't look like it's for me. When the interior could be entirely up your street but the cut you are judging a book by the cover which is a very true uh true thing but if you you know get, adjust the cover so that it looks it's got a different image or it's got a different typography or it's sort of brasher colors or it's more monochrome and it makes that person look again then it's and, and they see it they're seeing it they're getting it presented to on amazon then it might be that you know you, you get more sales just because of that that you, someone who's potentially passed by your book because they didn't like the look of the cover they might have a little oh that looks quite interesting and not realizing they've already looked at it before and it's also very easy to you know it's trivially easy to upload a new file nowadays the downside of it is you don't want to change the titles because you might confuse people which i have done (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I,
0: I have also done. But you just have to say previously published as or whatever, and I mean hope that it was long ago that people won't buy it. And of course, you can't buy the same Kindle file twice, and it will tell yeah. you you already bought this. So I don't worry too much about that. But what are um any other ways that you have found successful in terms of marketing crime fiction?
1: I think the sort of the main thing now is is all ads really. And I think I had a sort of point at the start of last year where my sales were sort of kind of in the toilet i didn't hadn't had a book out for a wee while i think and so it was just kind of like I had that sort of you know dark night of the soul moment whereas i need to look at what to how to get this working and i've done it dabbled a bit in this sort of facebook ads side of things and a bit of amazon ads and it was just really going hardcore on that and spending like i think a solid month maybe even six weeks of just Figuring out what the earth to do, reformatting all my books, re- recovering them, and and just sort of and then doubling the sales over that time, as well as kind of publishing some new stuff. But that it seems to be a lot of a lot of focuses on the the market the marketing side now is definitely about being able to advertise um, on the various platforms. I've only really done Facebook and Amazon, and they both got their own different functions I seem to find as I go through it I'm not particularly great at it I would say there's a lot of people out there who are much much better than me and you see their pages and their books being advertised against your own but you do see return on it Um, and obviously back in the day it used to be you uploaded a book got a few people to buy it and then Amazon's algorithm would kick in and fire it around I don't know if that's still Necessarily the case, or just the, <laughs> my vampire books spoiled my name with a lot of people. <laughs> or, uh, on I want to
0: read this vampire book now.
1: <laughs>
0: Is it under Ed James?
1: It was, I think I, I unpublished it last year actually because it didn't sell any. Um, it was just like we just, you should just
0: chuck his, it up under another name. I might now. do that,
1: yeah. I might Put do an that.
0: initial in it and stick <laughs> it up, you know. Why not? That's yeah. the thing. I feel like you talked earlier, you mentioned practice novels, and, and mm-hmm. I don't even know if we're in that world anymore. Like, I think there are so many varied types of books that people are put up onto Amazon, Kindle. As you say, if you do your own covers and you can Mm -hmm. can format things and you can just put something up under a different name, I think it's interesting. Personally, I'm up for your vampire novel, so (laughs) I want to hear that. But we're coming towards the end of our time, but I did want to ask you about... Mm Publi- your publishing experience because you've mentioned Thomas and Mercer mm-hmm. and then of course you've mentioned your self-publishing so you mentioned all the rejections at the beginning <laughs> but <laughs> what have been your choices through the actual publishing side and and what's changed
1: yeah so I've had I had a good a good run with Thomas and Mercer as a working as a hybrid thing so I publish a book with them every well was, they sort of batched up three uh, the first three friend church books for instance and that was a lot of you know getting three books together to then rapidly release and that was a huge success that that then um, led on to a lot of people discovering of my other books I think and then the, you know just uh, the thing. there's a lot with publishing publishing houses people faces change and stuff and people move on so I moved away from that and wanted to do a bit more have a bit more control myself and try other things. I've also, you know, worked with, I've had books published by uh, Headline and by Bookature, and they've both been uh, interesting experiences as well. It's interesting to see the different models that, that each of the publishers play. And a lot of, I think a lot of the, the thing, I think when you're considering whether to sell a book to a publisher or to self-publish it yourself, is that you basically, when you sell a book, you're ceding all control pretty much of that book, to, and you have to trust that somebody that person you're selling it to is going to do their utmost to sell the book as well as you can or better and obviously there's a lot of people out there who've made huge uh, sums of money from selling books to traditional publishers or digital publishers this, these days but the there's a lot of people who've had their fingers burnt and stuff and i think the the thing with this self the, the self-publishing side is that I've, I spend a lot of time on my main, maintaining my backlist, which I, I don't think many publishers necessarily do. And it's, you know, like, it's quite a good. It's a good passive income. Obviously, you need to do a bit of, bit of work on the uh, advertising side to get things in. But the stuff that Mark Dawson teaches on his course that does work. If you've got like a book, se- you know, book series, the funneling books through book one through six, seven, eight in the series, it does work, and it's it's lucrative if you can get it working. And that's the thing I would point to is that if, if you're in control of your. Uh, entire destiny with the publishing side of it then you're going to give your all to make sure those books sell as well as they can whereas a publisher um you know you're they they tend to stick to windows of about three months and if it's not sell they're not selling in that then that's it it's gone you're not hot anymore whereas you know you're always going to be hot to yourself (laughs) I (laughs) think. So, not sure um,
0: about
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's about focusing on, you give all your focus to the your, your entire your, all your babies that you've got out there. You want to give them all as much attention as possible and sell them as much as you can. Um, whereas a lot of publishers, they'll move on to the next big author. And it's the, the, the nature of the beast. And sometimes it's you're the big author and you're going to sell a gazillion uh, pounds of books. But I think it's harder and harder to see if that's going to be you or not. Or if you're just going to be something that's thrown at the wall and you just sort of dribble down the side.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah, as they say, they they might take a hundred books in a year or something and then one of them might stick or break out and it it is what's so difficult about the publishing industry I think is the reporting I mean it's the same in indie space which is you hear about the big successes in traditional publishing but you don't often hear about all the authors of which there are many who break up with their agent or get orphaned at a publisher or just get picked up and then nothing happens or you hear about the big success stories but I, I think also a lot of people don't want to criticize their publisher even if they're not being treated very well,
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, it, there's a certain amount of it's, um, it's professionalism that people will, will not do that. But yeah, the, what's you don't see, you don't pick up a copy of the bookseller and see here's a list of all the authors they've been dropped this week. Yeah, or, exactly. You know, it's all about here's so and so had a gazillion pound book deal. You know, uh, big on them, and here's their agent, and they've done really well. But a lot of times when, when people can get these big deals there's no guarantee of success as well. And it's quite, it must be quite tough to be a debut author getting a big deal, but then. Oh, I
0: don't know. One uh, of those seven figure deals would be (laughs) fine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> but then um, just before we finish, I did want to ask you, because you talked there sort of, it was 2012, I think you said 2011, 2012, when you put out, when you self-published mm-hmm. the first book. And um, I moved back to England in in 2011. Mm-hmm. And in 2012, I think I went to London Book Fair for the first time. And I, re- you know, started to socialize more in the British scene as such, the British writer scene. I think I even came to Harrogate at a similar time, Harrogate Crime Festival for people who were who listening. And I very much felt there was a stigma in the UK around self publishing that it really was still had this kind of negative view and people treated me a bit like a curiosity and I found that really hard and I wonder where how you think that well one did you feel the same way back in 2012 and then have you seen things change
1: um i, I think you're totally right and i don't think it has changed that much i think if you look at the big uh, festivals like harrogate bloody scotland capital crime etc I don't they don't tend to have a lot of indie authors or or even digital digitally published authors like through Thomas and Mercer or Boacher or whatever. I think there's definitely a stigma attached to not being with a, a big traditional publisher and having the weight of their uh, publicity machine at it yeah it's there's definitely I think there's a sort of a snobbish element out there but I think actually when you meet other authors all, all the ones who are traditionally published, they're always very interested. I don't know if you get that. They're very interested in, well, how do you find self-publishing and all that kind of stuff? Or, you know, the hmm, indie quietly, mind. Quietly necessi- interested. Yes, <laughs> quietly interested. They don't want their agent to see you talking to them. Um, but it's maybe they, they sort of, I think they maybe see it as like a, as a, a sort of a, little, a wee hobby they could have on the side, rather than actually the indie mindset, which I suppose is kind of different from self-publishing, where it's a it's a you are your own publisher, and you're actually going to push yourself really far. Whereas the self-publishing just feels a bit more—I mean, you use the terminology—feels it feels a bit more hobbyist. So I think that's the impression I get, and I think a lot of them. I think the, the difficulty they see is actually, oh, how do I get a cover done? How do I get someone to edit it? How do I upload it on Amazon? Which is all the easy stuff. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's the, it's the marketing. That's the really tough stuff, and that's the bit that I don't think anyone really appreciates. And there's a lot of um, a lot of hard hours put into just mastering any of that kind of stuff.
0: Oh, well, then I, I, yeah, I should have met you back then. I think maybe (laughs) I did, but I was probably like, because I'm such an introvert, I probably just didn't speak to anyone. (laughs) I just stood in the corner. But um, no, that's fantastic. So where can people find you and your books online?
1: Yeah, so uh, my books are all on Amazon. So I would suggest... I think the, the first Scott Collin book is 79p. Um, you can have a look at that. There's a Vicki Dodds book called Blood and Guts, which is free. There's another three in that series. And my website, which uh, Joanna pointed out has not been updated in quite some time, is <laughs> um, edjames.co.uk if you want to see some uh, very outdated content.
0: <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for your time, Ed. That was great.
1: Thank you very much, Joanna.
0: So I hope you found that interview with Ed interesting and that it gave you some insights for your writing process and your publishing and marketing choices and even your book research. Ed talked about some of the things he did, he did to reboot his author career. And you can find another interview on rebooting with Michael Brent Collings in episode 503 from last August. And uh, that was super interesting too. So you can always go listen to that. So later this week, I've got an in-between episode on co-creating with AI writing and image tools with Shane Neely. Shane has used AI text within his nonfiction book in separate sections rather than blending the output. So, you know, he writes a couple of paragraphs and then he has this little text box with the AI commenting or saying something that he then uses to sort of riff off some more. It's, it's quite a different approach. He's also used AI tools in a collaborative process to create images and poetry and just generally go back and forwards with this book and has published a book on AI art and poetry, sorry, of AI art and poetry, which he's also released as NFTs, and we've talked about NFTs differently. So, this is definitely a whole load of futurist stuff. And I say futurist, it's not futurist, is it anymore? People are actually doing this, but I like talking to people who are doing interesting things. So, uh, that is coming up as an in between episode. Then, on next Monday's show, I'll be talking about gentle book marketing with Sarah Santa Croce, which, let's face it, many of us would prefer to market in a gentle way. So, happy writing, and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.